don't so much care if a student is from the left or from the right, but what I'm looking for is a sense of authenticity and a sense of um, drive and a sense of desire to work for the common good, even if you conceptualize that differently um, than how someone else does. That's Chad Dowding, program manager of the Cook Leadership Academy at the Howenstein Center. Today we hear from Chad and two student fellows in the academy, Michaela Cole and Matthew Udbier, about their vision for leadership in politics and the humanities after election 2016. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Chad Dowding manages the Howenstein Center's Cook Leadership Academy. That means he helps to identify and cultivate undergraduate and graduate student leaders at Grand Valley State University. The students he recruits are from different majors, business or pre-med, English literature or political science, and they often have very different goals. I asked Chad how he goes about identifying emergent leaders in their early 20s and how he helps them develop their projects and initiatives. I also asked Chad how the students he works with especially those involved in politics, have responded to election 2016. Have they become more or less involved in the political process? Have they moved further left or right? What are the trends? We'll also hear from two fellows in the academy, Michaela Cole and Matt Udbier. Michaela is on her way to getting an undergraduate degree in political science, and Matt is about to start a PhD program in philosophy. I ask how they define leadership in their respective fields, and they clue us in on the ways they're trying to orient their work to the changing political climate in America. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, uh, Chad Dowding, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so we're sitting, we're sitting with you, obviously, Chad, but we're also with um, two fellows in the Cook Leadership Academy, Matt and Michaela, who we'll be talking to in a moment. Um, but I just want to really quick sort of introduce you to listeners. So, Chad, you're program manager of the Cook Leadership Academy at the Howenstein Center. Uh, basically, as I've always understood it, uh, your job is to sort of help uh, or, or rather work with students who either are already in leadership roles of some capacity um, as undergrads or grad students, or you work with students who simply just exhibit the traits of leadership. Um, maybe we can talk about what that means later. But... It, it's clear that your role at Grand Valley and at the Hounsen Center is obviously very important, but the content of the job description must not have been totally clear when you started because like your function is kind of nebulous. You have to sort of mentor students in one sense, but you also have to connect them with mentors and you have to sort of enable them in some sense to sort of develop as leaders. So I'm guess, I guess I'm just wondering, how have you come in the past few years to sort of define the position that you hold? What do you do? That's a great question, Joe. So for me, I think there you hit on the nebulous part of my position, and that is to both select and create opportunities for students while also being a mentor and supporter of them uh, in the aspects of leadership that they want to pursue in their lives. Um, but the difficulty with that is uh, it's exactly nebulous. Every student has a different path, a different direction, and a different desire. And so when you have a cohort of 60 or more students, you're working on trying to create individualized experiences that are going to benefit each student. Um, it's, it's student affairs at its best, um, but it's something that is a powerful way of providing students with professional and leadership opportunities that are going to get them uh, into their next stages in life. So I, I was sort of looking at um, um, 
the websites of a variety of leadership academies uh, recently just to sort of think about questions for you. And one thing I noticed, and I th we've talked about this before, um, but often the language that's used to describe the work of a leadership academy is really interesting. There's always this term cultivation comes up. We cultivate leaders. Uh, and I think that's kind of funny because it's almost like it conceives of students at, as, as sort of plants that need like watering and sunlight or something. And the gardener's function is to sort of just go in and develop the, the student leader in some way. And I'm just sort of wondering, uh, in what ways do you conceive of your work? Like, wh like wh when, when, you, when, you, when you think, okay, this is what I do, do you use certain metaphors to describe, like, do you think of yourself as a facilitator, as, um, as, as an enabler? Like, when you work with students, what do you, how do you think of your work? I would say mainly as a facilitator and uh, in some ways an enabler. I, I say that only because as a facilitator, I try and provide opportunities that are giving students exposure that they might not otherwise have. When I say enable, it's not that the inherent qualities of leadership and skill aren't already within our students, um, but having them focus distinctly on that and to recognize it within themselves and then to try and carry that forward is essentially the goal. Um, so it, part of the reason that students are brought into the program to begin with is because we already see great potential within them. It's just helping them either recognize that potential themselves or to start acting upon what we see as that potential. How do you identify the potential? I think it's mainly focused on clear-headedness. I mean, there's, there's certainly an aspect by which students demonstrate a desire, an interest, a passion, um, as you probably would hear Gleaves say, a fire in their belly. Um, there, there's, a, there's an intent to try and do good in the world, however they conceive of that, and a passion and a dedication toward working toward that goal. So you've been running the Cook Leadership Academy for a few years. I think I came on as a fellow the same time you started as a program manager. What have you learned about what it takes to, to really mentor students and sort of enable them to develop as leaders um, and as sort of doers in the world? Uh, what did you learn in the past few years that you didn't know when you started? Oh, there's a lot I didn't know when I first started, but I, I would say that I've learned that listening to students is the first part of my job. So if I'm going to be successful in pairing them with a mentor or, or providing programming that's going to provide a specific and tangible direction for them, I need to know what it is they want to do and where they want to take their passion and interests. Um, I can't say I always get it right, and it's a constant effort of improvement, but knowing what students are interested in and what they want to pursue gives me the outlet to figure out how I can best benefit them. View are some of the most common projects or the most striking projects that students undertake uh, in the Leadership Academy um, that seem to be unique to this generation, if you, can, if you can define them. So I'm thinking of, for instance, our friend Dana, who does work in like sustainable agriculture or sustainability. Like what are some common projects that students are doing today that you think might actually surprise someone um, who is maybe a baby boomer? Yeah, well, I, I think what I would say is the baby boomer generation, and I'm not to speak here in stereotypes, but I, I think there's there's a conception of millennials as somehow um, beholden or needy in some ways. And I think what is surprising about the generation of students that we work with 
is there are many of them who have worked very hard to either pay their way through school or have worked very hard to engage in every opportunity that's presented to them. Um, you know, we'll hear from some fellows later, but students who have actively engaged in student organizations have sought out uh, volunteer opportunities in the community, have worked 40-hour weeks on top of their class load mm. to try and make sure that they can pay for as much of their college education as possible. I think there's sometimes a narrative around millennials that, in my experience, just doesn't doesn't match up. Could you talk about that a bit more? So, like, what... Yeah, I, I, I was just listening... Before I got here, I was looking at um, well, I was looking at Twitter, which is uh, whenever I start a, a podcast question with Twitter, I always sort of worry about it. Um, uh, but in fact, I, and in fact, I think I think some of the conversations on Twitter actually do indicate what's being talked about right now in the culture. And one thing I can't remember who said it, but some business leader said something like, "You know, the problem with millennials today is that they spend too much on smashed avocados, uh, and they don't, in fact, like like." Uh, save for a house or something and i thought well that's a mischaracterization one of of a generation of people who as you point out are actually probably working very hard because they've inherited um an economy an economic situation that is in fact in fact very hard to enter um and to do well in so i'm just wondering what are some misconceptions about millennials about the generation of students um that you work with yeah, I mean, there's certainly an impression that's been voiced that, you know, we were the generation who were told that we could always do whatever we wanted. Um, and I think that's in better ways and, and in not so good ways, it certainly led us to one positive aspect, which is leading with a very purpose-driven expectation, um, which means that when we're coming to the type of work we're going to do, we're looking for some sort of fulfillment in our work. And I think part of the reason you see such great turnover in the number of millennials who are switching their positions is that they're not finding purpose-driven opportunities in their first careers. Mm. Um, that's why you see millennials changing positions every two and a half to three years. They're looking for purpose or to have a, a sense of fulfillment in the work they do on a regular basis. So we're sitting in um, DC, um, and so I do have to ask about the current political situation, this very sclerotic political situation. You know, you have to work with students of different political positions, obviously. How do you run a program that makes it safe uh, for students to have different political positions? And what, what unique difficulties um, do you face in trying to make a program that not only um, makes it possible for people to have different political beliefs, but also like provides them with opportunities to explore those? I think for me that starts with a level of creation of community. Um, part of what we've heard from our time here at the Washington campus and in Washington DC, as well as from a lot of commentators, is that you have to have a sense of trust. You have to have a sense of value for, for the mutual humanity of the other people who you're talking to. Um, it has to start there, and then from there you can build to a space where you can fundamentally disagree about issues of social policy or economic policy, but still, but still value the shared humanity and the value of a, a principled position of your counterpart. Um, now in the Leadership Academy, and I think in our, in our country more broadly, I think there's a, there's a microcosm here that, that seems to be working, and that is bringing people together on a regular basis where 
they can one get to know each other but over time they can have intensive conversations about policy and their differences of opinion in that space but by then they've already built a relationship that's not going to be infringed upon if they have a disagreement have you found that fellows on the whole have become more politicized either on the left or the right in reaction to election 2016 I don't know if I've seen them become more politicized. I think I would say that they have become more overtly political. Um, I think what I've seen is there was an era for many young people in the Obama time period, including myself, that we were essentially lulled into an expectation that things were progressing in a particular direction. Um, and you were either in favor of that or you weren't. Um, but since the election of Trump, I think millennials in particular and young people have recognized the importance of the political system and when things go wrong or not as you anticipated them to go, um, there's an interest and a desire to, to become more active. Now would I say that students have be like shifted their political positions or anything like that? I don't know if I would say that. Um, but what I s would say is that people have become more issue driven. They're more engaged in the process uh, holistically. That That's correct. Um, do you think of the work you do as political in any sense right now at the Hauenstein Center? There is, there is a political element to the fact that we have the Common Ground Initiative, um, but I think my work necessarily has to be bipartisan. If I am bringing together fellows from a diverse cohort that represent every demographic we find on our university's campus, I, I have to necessarily promote where a student wants to go. So if they'd like to work for Representative Amash, who represents Grand Rapids, or if they'd like to go work in the state, state capitol with Winnie Brinks, who represents a, a smaller section of Grand Rapids, it's our duty to put them with, us, with someone who aligns with them ideologically, um, but can help to provide a professional opportunity that helps them grow. So Michaela and I were talking before we uh, started this interview, and I, wh one thing we were talking about is whether it's possible um, if, if, if you think of leadership as being values-driven, how do you lead a leadership academy in which you are bipartisan, in which you are working with students of both parties, uh, uh, in which you're working with students who have fundamentally different values? So how do you, like, how do you cultivate a community in which it's possible to have rival values? I would say you start with the values you have in common. And one of those that I look for when selecting fellows is a sense of altruism. I don't so much care if a student is from the left or from the right, but what I'm looking for is a sense of authenticity and a sense of um, drive and a sense of desire to work for the common good, even if you conceptualize that differently um, than how someone else does. Do you find, I mean, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of skepticism about the possibility of finding common ground um, or defining the common good in a um, coherent bipartisan way in the current political situation in which the right seems so far right sometimes and the left seems so far left. Do you find that fellows uh, and, and the students you work with are game to have that conversation. Students on the left and the right are sort of interested in talking with each other about this, uh, about this topic, about finding the common good, uh, finding some mutual, mutually held definition of the common good. I think there's a desire to seek a, a mutual common good. 
I feel the dilemmas that have led us to the hyper-partisanship we find ourselves in and the, the left moving further left and the right moving further right have been propagated by structural concerns in the ways that our, our electorate is, is pulled together. Students are actively interested in engaging in issues and they're actively interested in, in advancing what they see as the promise of our country. Some people conceptualize those that advancement of our country differently. And so I think the challenge is not so much in bringing people to the table, it's bringing to people to the table in a way where you're going to have a productive conversation. So I'd like to talk um, just a little bit with the two fellows that you've brought into this conversation. Michaela, Matt, thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast as well. Thanks for having us, Joe. Um, so uh, first question, uh, this one's easy. What's your major? Political science. Philosophy. Oh, good. Okay, so Michaela, first for you, what made you want to join the Leadership Academy? I actually didn't seek out the Leadership Academy. The Leadership Academy kind of found me. Um, I had some really great professors freshman year who were really engaged and really invested in my development, both as a student and as a person. And they nominated me for the Academy and really encouraged me to apply and I applied not really knowing much about what the academy was or what they did, and I'm so, so thankful to those professors and for Chad and everything I've gotten out of it since, just because it has been so overwhelmingly beneficial to my leadership development and personal development. But, um, yeah, I, d I didn't seek it out. I kind of stumbled upon it. Um, I think the same thing for me. Um, so I got a an email or nomination for the Cook Leadership Academy and I wasn't sure who nominated me but this was I think my junior year I got that and I pretty much it went through my email inbox and I said I've got so much stuff going on right now um, that I can't take on anything else um, and it was my senior year I had gotten the email again and I had, I think I might have heard something about it before actually because it was the Hauenstein Center right and I had been going to Common Ground um, events and so I was actually kind of interested I was like well maybe I should look into this and I asked one of my my advisor about it and he said um, just apply just you know you got the nomination apply put in your application for it um, I said well what about you know I've got all this other stuff going on it's gonna be a huge commitment and, I, and he said they'll work with you they're looking for uh, they're looking for people like you and just do it and they'll help they'll It'll be a great opportunity, and there's going to be great opportunities for you uh, in the program. So that's kind of how I, I came into it. Again, I think like Michaela, it wasn't like I was looking for this. It was they found me, and I, I'm glad they did find me. So one thing that's so interesting, Chad, I'm so glad you, uh, for so many reasons, I'm so glad you brought up these two. One is because they're both in the humanities or the social sciences. And I, w I remember when I came on to the Cook Leadership Academy, I, there were just, there weren't that many people in the humanities. Um, and so in some ways I didn't, I was, I was like a literature student and I had no idea what it would mean to be a student leader who like studies literature. Like I thought maybe that would mean that I would like give impromptu performances of Shakespeare to like rile up other people to do so. I had no idea what that would mean. And so I'm wondering like what, given your respective majors, how do you, con how, how do you conceive of leadership? Like what does it mean to be a leader in political science? What does it mean to be a leader in philosophy? 
That's a great question, Joe. And I think I, I was similar to you in that I really hadn't thought too much about leadership outside of corporate leadership or the presidency or what you think of when you think of traditional leadership positions. So uh, I went through a bit of an exploration phase within the Cook Leadership Academy in learning that there are a lot of different kinds of leadership and that leadership can take many different forms, sometimes even as a follower. So as far as leadership and political science goes, I think that it obviously can take the form that you'd expect in terms of running for office, in terms of holding political office and and working your way up the political ladder, so to speak. But I think it can also take the form of helping other people get there and making connections and uh, more so to what Chad was saying about working towards a common good via political means, which is something that I'm really passionate about. I know I want to make a difference and I know I can do, do so through policy and through politics and that in and of itself and I think is a form of leadership. Well, really quick, just before we turn it over to Matt, you said, um, the way you conceive of being a leader in politics is trying to define some understanding of the common good and trying to work toward it as a leader. What does that mean for you right now? I think for me right now, um, definitely my, my partisan politics factor into my conception of the common good. Um, and I'd be remiss to, to pretend as if they don't. Um, <laughs> so I think that uh, when I think of the common good, I do think of tolerance. I think of unity. I think of social justice. I think of creating a fair and equitable society in which civil rights and civil liberties are protected and in which everyone feels as if they have a voice and that the democratic system is working for them, not against them or not over them. I think that civic engagement is really, really important and it's something that's been steadily declining. So that would be I, political, common good in the way that I think of it would be a well-functioning democratic society that works for everyone. And so, Matt, how do you define um, leadership in philosophy? So, I mean, Michaela does political science, which is it, it, it's still part of the humanities, obviously, in some sense, even though she may, I, I don't um, maybe you think of it as social sciences. Certainly there's overlap, um, but it lends itself more to a conventional definition of leadership. Um, but Matt, I mean, philosophy, I mean, what's the joke? I, I studied philosophy t too. I was a minor and I, we, I think we've had this conversation before, but like, it's hard sometimes to respond to questions, you know, from like your uncle, like, what are you going to do with that? Um, you're obviously going to get a PhD in philosophy, but how do you define not only, um, how do you make philosophy work in the world? If that's the way you think of leadership and also generally, how do you define leadership in your subject matter? Um, yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, I think, I mean, um, for, as far as philosophy goes, I, I think it gives me a, a better understanding of the world. So I use philosophy to understand the world. Um, and that allows me to, to find out which direction I want to go. The, the purpose that I have, um, I think in the, in the past, and I'm going to, I guess, bring in philosophy into this and I probably should. Um, <laughs> but I, I think in the past, a lot of it has been your, your Humean, or you're a Kantian as far as your ethics go, and can you can you summarize? Just so so you're either you're either um, sentimentalists, where you're you're humans, you're sentimentalists, and you're going to be driven by your emotion and your uh, compassion for others, or you're going to be driven by some sort of logic or pure reason to drive your you know how you understand the world, and and I think me personally, but I think a lot of a lot of people in 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 philosophy or in the world in general are 
are not satisfied with that and they want a combination of that they want the the mid road somewhere and and i think that for for leadership that i need to find that mid road and i need to help direct people along that that path what does that mean so with 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 michaela she could do things like try to run for office or she could try to um uh run some kind of i don't know political action committee she could do lots of things in politics but with ph philosophy i mean there's the there's the conception of the the people's philosopher as as just someone who just sort of walks this sort of a socratic like figure who just sort of exists yeah. in the world and or, or platonic and sort of just holds symposia is that what you have in mind for leadership and philosophy or is it like writing in the field uh producing scholarship or is it something else no so i mean i i, I see my my uh my academic career as um kind of twofold where I have this academic career and I and I see leadership in that direction as far as finding new ideas new ways beyond some of the um, the issues we have especially in politics I mean political philosophy is kind of where I am my interest is right now and I think a lot of it has to do with the political climate that we're in mm -hmm. and this this uh, you know disagreement that we have um, and I think philosophy can get us um, kind of through some of these issues, trying to understand um, better how to find common ground, the, the philosophies, mm. understanding the philosophies of each of these camps. Um, when we were talking to um, uh, Congressman uh, Hazanga today, he had mentioned his philosophy. And we talked to a number of senators and congressmen, and they all talk about their philosophy. And so I, I think, I mean, people are philosophy-driven. They have principles that they want to uh, promote and trying to understand, you know, what exactly does that mean? What exactly are these people's um, philosophies? You know, what are the, 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 the basic components of those? And are they different from each other? People who have disagreements, are there basic components um, that drive their philosophy? Are they different? Um, and trying to understand how we find, uh, reconcile those things. Or if we can, I mean, maybe we can't reconcile some of these basic things. Well, that's that's so interesting. So in, in both cases uh, with Michaela and Matt, it sounds like um, we've been talking sort of generally about Michaela, the way you use some definition of the common good to inform your political beliefs or maybe vice versa and how that will sort of drive you in your pursuit of um, a political career or, or a career in politics. Matt, you're talking about a career in in philosophy and doing work on on the philosophies that actually determine um, what positions politicians take and whether these things are incommensurable or irreconcilable. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm wondering if we can get specific. So with Michaela, um, do you, uh, th this is a tough question that you, you probably, you know, sort of get asked by parents or like, yeah. or like <laughs> uncles or aunts or whatever, but, um, um, do you have a set goal for yourself? Like in the next five, 10 years, you know, this understanding of the common good that you have, the work you've been doing in the Leadership Academy, do, do, is there a place you see yourself in 10 years? That's a great question and something that I'm sure my dad would really also like to know. <laughs> yeah, this is for your um, parents. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, I kind of went through a bit of a rocky journey with political science and, and my career exploration within the field. I actually just recently recommitted to the idea of serving in politics. I lost faith for a little while and thought that I might be better served working in the corporate world. So uh, 
it wasn't actually until the 2016 election that I really felt the call for action and really felt that duty and that fire in my belly, um, so to speak, uh, to work in D.C., work in my state legislatures to enact change uh, through politics. And so I, I'm still figuring it out. I would I think I'd like to work in political communications, either through, you know, working on campaigns, working uh, speech writing or. Uh, as an aide, uh, I don't think I'd like to personally run for office, but I'd like to help other people get there. Hmm. DC is a bit of a pay your dues type of city, so I'm sure I'll have to do a lot of other jobs before I eventually get to that that dream job. Uh, you know, whether it's communications coordinator or chief speechwriter or or something like that. But I think tentatively right now that that would be my goal. So I, I, I'm going to take the bait on one of the first things you said, which is that you lost faith, and then 2016. Um, made a summons upon you in a sense to recommit. And so I'm wondering what initially, if you want to get into it, I don't know if it's personal or if it's political or both, um, what led to your loss of faith? Well, on the one hand, what led to your loss of faith? And on the other hand, what made you think of it as a loss of faith? Like, uh, does that question make sense? No, that does make sense. And uh, it's something that I don't think I even realized was happening at the time. I, my passion for political science was born uh, in high school. I participated in a super nerdy constitutional debate team that pretty much consumed all of my free time, and I loved it. And then upon coming to Grand Valley, um, what really caused me to doubt my academic choice and major was the complete lack of information that I had on eventual career paths. I was pretty much only being presented with the option of you're either going to be a lawyer or you're going to work in public administration, and neither of those paths seemed exciting to me. Neither of them uh, made me feel as if I was going to be doing good or could be working to my skill set and achieving my leadership abilities. So uh, it eventually just kind of drained out of me and I didn't know what I was going to do with a political science degree. And on top of that, not only was I experiencing a lack of support from a lot of my friends and extended family, but outright encouragement to explore other opportunities specifically in business so um i started to explore those opportunities i added a business minor and uh, i studied abroad last year and during study abroad most of the classes that i took were business classes um and so i think of it as a loss of faith so that's that's kind of how i lost faith but in terms of why why i think of it in that way i i guess i think of of political science uh, more so as a duty than it, it's an interest and it's a passion, but it's also a duty. I'm a member of civic society. I have a skill set and I have a passion to enact change through politics. And I, I think it would be irresponsible for me to not pursue that when instead I, you know, in lieu of making more money, doing something else or doing something that might allow me to travel, but wouldn't allow me to really do good in the world. Um, and so I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but that's that's kind of where the loss of faith happened. And then it, during the 2016 election, I'm kind of the resident expert on politics in my friend group. And so everyone was asking me, you know, oh, explain the Electoral College or explain what a third party is or talk to me about this scandal or this statement or who this person is. And I would explain it and I would just get so excited talking about politics and I had forgotten what it was like to be so genuinely interested and so genuinely passionate in my area of expertise. And then after Hillary Clinton's defeat um, and seeing what's been going on in Washington, the hyperpolarization, the um, just some, um, it, it really, it felt like a call to action for me. Do you feel, we're sitting in DC right now, do you feel 
energized by being here? Do you feel like um, like the programs um, that you've been doing uh, with with Chad um, for the past few days? Do you feel like this is a place you would want to be? Definitely. I think that's one of the biggest things that I've gotten out of this experience has not only uh, the ability to explore some of the more uh, niche areas that I haven't been able to explore in school, whether that's tax reform or the regulatory process, but it's also allowed me to just experience DC, to interact with the people who are change makers here and picture myself in the shoes of their staff. And I think without a doubt, I could see myself working here, living here and trying to make change here. So, so Matt, um, I, I, we were just talking before about uh, uh, you being accepted into a PhD program in philosophy. Um, right, that's correct. That's yeah. okay. Good. Yeah, you looked at correct. me like I was okay. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, at Maryland. Yes. Okay. Congratulations. Obviously. So, um, uh, but that does take up PhDs do tend to take up a lot of time. I asked Michaela what she wanted to do in the next five or 10 years. I mean, in, in the next five years, assumedly you'll be, I want to get a PhD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'll be toiling away. Um, um, based on your, um, the, the way you described leadership and philosophy and the questions that you ask about politics and political philosophy, um, in the next five or 10 years, what sort of, say, writing do you want to be doing? Um, uh, what kind of questions do you hope to be asking? What kind of effect, either intellectual and philosophical or sort of on the ground and practical, do you hope to have on American political discussion? Um, yeah, so I've got a number of questions floating around in the uh, the noodle uh, that I got <laughs> so here. you're a philosopher. Um, yeah, so... Uh, most of the things that I'm interested in on are, um, I think, international relations and kind of the demo just democracy as we know it. And um, I, and I was talking to you about this earlier about um, this um, this idea of ethno philosophies, um, idea the philosophies of from a cultural perspective that can't be known from other cultural perspectives. Um, so, for instance, uh, in the West we have this idea of democracy. Uh, but is that the same idea, uh, the, the democracy from the Western perspective, is that the same idea that it is in, in say, Africa or in, in Asia? Do they have the same idea um, of democracy as we do? Um, or this idea of nationalism, this idea of uh, support for one's country and where you live, uh, for one's state, uh, in the Western uh you know, Western states, is it the same thing as uh, someone from, say, uh, the Congo has an idea or perspective on nationalism? So I, those are some of the questions that I, I, I want to, to look at. And I think by looking at these different cultural perspectives that we can have a better understanding of, of ourselves, me being from the West, uh, maybe I can add to this conversation or try to identify uh, maybe a better route to take if we understand it from different cultural perspectives, you know, um, if we understand it from, you know, nationalism from the the African perspective or from the um, Asian perspective, is is that give us a, a different understanding of uh, nationalism that we can we can take that and and kind of combine it with our own nationalism and, and create something better than what we have. So I mean, you seem the questions that you're asking seem to be hugely timely and topical uh, at a number of different levels. So I mean, this idea of whether 
Western democracy is broadly applicable in all cultural contexts. I mean, that's something certainly that um, that uh, Americans uh, and folks in the West generally were asking uh, around um, the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also this question of nationalism is uh, huge today, not just in America, but throughout the West. I mean, we're seeing it's it's strange. It's like nationalism is somehow like an international phenomenon or trend. It's this weird irony. Um, What has led you to these particular questions? Um, I think it's probably the political climate we're in right now. I think these things. So I um, and I mean, to say especially the democracy, issue. I think I, so I'm a veteran and I served in Iraq and, um, you know, I kind of grew up in this idea of the 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 the, the Gulf War uh, and the. I don't know if it's the beginning of the spreading of democracy, but this idea that democracy can be established in other locations and that once we spread democracy, the world's going to be a better place. And coming out of that kind of uh, mindset, and I'm trying to figure out, is was this a good mindset to have or can we do this? Um, I look at, you know, there are, you know, this idea that so uh, – you know, never in the history has to have two democracies ever gone to war. And that seems like if we can spread democracy, then we're going to get rid of war and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I, I look at that and I'm like, I w- that sounds like a great thing to do if we can spread democracy. But then you look at the, you know, you know, the U.S. spreading democracy. Has that ended war? No, that's I mean, you have to get into wars to try to do this. And a lot of times it's unsuccessful. Uh, but we want to find, I mean, I would like to find ways of spreading democracy in a way that doesn't cause war, but, you know, ends war. And I think that's, a, you know, I think a noble cause. And I think that's something that we should strive to. Do I think it's possible? Maybe not. But I think it's the what we should strive for. So I, I have a number of questions. I'm going, I'm going to, um, hmm. I'm going to I'm going to sort of hold your feet to the fire about my first question, though, actually, which is, OK, so you're working on obviously very important topics and you're asking questions that you, in a sense, have lived like your, your position as a veteran is testament to this, that you've been like thinking about this for a while, obviously. And we've had conversations about this. What, what do you uh, do? You see yourself writing in the next 10 years? Do you see yourself publishing on these topics? Um do you see yourself sort of engaging in, in, in sort of conversations in a way that would like spread the ideas that you're talking about or help people ask the questions that you're talking about? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I, I think I, uh, I, I think that's a two parted question is in, in that in the philosophy is a very competitive kind of, um, uh, field to be in, in because there are a lot of people who want to study philosophy. Well, I mean, not a lot, but there's quite a few. Um, and the, um, the prospects for finding a position in a university or, um, you know, with a job after you get a PhD is not the, they're not the greatest prospects. So you have to publish and you have to promote things. So I think there's one aspect to it. But the second, I think, yes, I would be writing regardless. I think I'd be writing regardless if I was pursuing a PhD program. Mm -hmm. Um, when, you know, when I applied for PhD programs, I was also looking at, um, uh, public policy programs, master's degrees, uh, and 
and the idea was that even if I pursue a master's in public policy or security studies or some of these other programs that I think I would do great and I would love and I would enjoy doing, that I would still be pursuing philosophy and I would still be writing in this area because these are things that I'm interested in and just because I'm studying in a, in a somewhat different field, I'm still going to want to know and I'm still going to pursue. And that's, I mean, maybe that's just my hit my background in philosophy uh, that's talking, but I mean, I, I'm not going to lose that. I'm, you know, I could be, you know, homeless on the streets and I think I'd still be asking these questions and writing these, these, my thoughts down on these things. So I'll put my, I'll, I'll, I'll put a final question to both of you. Um, I, you've both touched on it um, to some degree, but you're, you, you, you both just recently graduated. No. Okay. Cut that out, cut that out. Um, <laughs> you're, you're both, you're both either you have graduated or you're near the end of your undergraduate careers. Um, you've been in the Leadership Academy. Um, you've been, as Michaela pointed out explicitly, you've been um, going through a process of discernment uh, to discover what you feel like your vocation is, what you want to do. Um, what has on these questions? What has the Leadership Academy and the leadership program, the CLA, meant to you? Um, how has it, as as you've been a part of it, how have you um, put questions to yourself in a way that helps you define a vision for life that you and a vision for the world that you want to uh, enact? Oh gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, so I think like CLA has helped me in a couple of really fundamental ways. Uh, first of all. And this is something that actually uh, Barbara Kellerman, who, who's a, a scholar who, who works with Harvard, who came to speak at CLA graduation this year, said really well is you can't just teach leadership. Leadership has to be for something. Leadership for what? So that's something that I have been working on and working with CLA to figure out is what is my leadership for? What am I going to be leading in and what's the purpose behind it um so that's definitely something that cla has given me it's a new way to conceptualize leadership that i had never thought of before i had always thought of leaders as the bosses uh or the older sisters and i had never thought about leadership as being purpose-driven or values driven so exploring that concept with the guidance of cla has been really important for me um and then i would say on top of that also uh a little bit aside from leadership but particularly uh influential for me and my personal uh, academic interests would be uh, the Hauenstein Center's overall focus on common ground. Uh, I uh, consider myself a, a, a raging liberal, like I have a, a ton of really, really staunch beliefs, but through you know things like the Common Ground Initiative and just interacting with other fellows who have really diverse perspectives, like, like Chad said, cultivating a sense of community and where it's safe to have tough conversations about topics that people disagree on has made me probably one of the largest advocates for bipartisanship that uh, out of all of my other political science colleagues and I even thought today it would be a great experience to be the one liberal on an entire staff of Republican staffers for a Republican congressman just to to be that voice and to have that balance and uh, we've met with a couple of people this trip who actively are working on finding bipartisan solutions and searching for that common ground between the two parties, which I do believe is there. I think it, we just have to find it and it's leadership that'll get us there. So uh, I'm going to, now that you've, now that you've brought up, I didn't want to ask you to bring out your own political 
positions, but you're obviously in, in many ways happy to and, pr- and proud to uphold them and um, and and in a political set, a professional setting. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I'm wondering then is, okay, so when you go into um, a conversation with someone on the right or someone just with different political uh, beliefs, um, and you you think about that in a common ground context, and what I mean is you think about it very deliberately as I'm not necessarily coming here to have have a sort of argument that will get us nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what what spirit do you enter that conversation in, and what do you think you're going to get out of it? Do you think like maybe at the end of this I will have changed my perspective on something or my opinion about something? Do you think that the person you're talking with will have changed his or her opinion? Um, um, if that's the case, I want to know why that is and whether you think that's a good thing because you obviously do take very seriously your principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, it, if that's not the end goal, if the end goal isn't to convince the person that he or she is wrong or for you to be convinced that you are wrong, what is the goal? That's a great question. And I wish there was an easy answer. And I think every single person you ask is going to have a different answer. Uh, but for me, I don't believe that that in the quest to search for common ground, you should be trying to convert anyone to your beliefs. I don't think that that's sustainable. I don't think that that's productive. And I think exactly like what you said, it's just going to end up being an argument. And this is actually something that I talked with Gleaves about. The, the whole secret of common ground isn't to agree. It's to listen to each other. Uh, because I think really what what's neat there isn't going to be some magical solution where all of a sudden we find a policy that everyone agrees on and it solves the world what what's more important is humanizing each other because i think more and more often in today's political arena we're not talking about the politics or we're not talking about the policy we're talking about the person and we're judging people's character on whether they're a democrat or a republican there's been studies that have shown that now more than ever uh, parents would be upset more upset if their child uh, married someone from the opposite political party than if they married someone from a different race, ethnicity, religion, or even gender, which to me is, is just crazy to think about because your politics and your policies shouldn't define you as a person. So having these face-to-face conversations about what other people believe in and humanizing them, looking them in the eyes and understanding where they're coming from, that's the most important part of common ground. I don't think finding common ground is... The, the most important part of common ground. I think it's searching for common ground that's really the most important part of common ground. Um, and, that's, and that's really why I think that bipartisanship kind of gets a, a, a put on a pedestal that it shouldn't really be put on because I think bipartisanship is about compromise. It's about sacrificing some of your principles for the ability to do something instead of doing nothing and, and just sticking to your guns all the time. And I was actually just having a conversation with one of the other fellows in the lobby about campaign finance reform and we are on complete opposite ideas of it but we know each other and I learned some stuff about where he was coming from and he learned some of my ideas and um, I think just getting a more rounded picture of all of the diversity of thought that's out there on issues is really needed and really lacking in today's democracy one last quick question about that so I mean I wonder about this because I really like the way you put um, the idea of it not being important to find common ground necessarily. It's important to search for common ground. Um, I think that's true. I wonder about this a lot as well. Um, But often if, if, if you are in a situation like the one you just described where you Mm -hmm. meet with someone who's on the polar opposite 
um, um, pole, polar opposite pole, the opposite pole of a position uh, or of an issue uh, than as, as you are on, often to justify meeting with that person and talking with them, people say something like, well, it's good to know your enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. But that seems to be sort of against the spirit. Of, yeah. I, I'm wondering, let's, can we explore that for just a moment? So, like, do definitely. you think about that? Like, and, and what's your position on that issue? Well, well, I wouldn't consider the Republican Party my enemies, there you go. per okay, se. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a pretty pessimistic view mm. of, of bipartisanship and of searching for common ground. Um, I think it's just important to have tough conversations. And I think that when you're going to the table to have them, if you need to justify it by knowing the enemy, then you're not going there for the right reasons. You're going there to win. And, and politics, I don't think should be about winning. I think it should be about cooperating to advance the prosperity of the entire country, not your own personal agenda. And I, I also think that not to get too into political science on what exactly constructs an ideology, but but to posit that the left and the right are on two opposite ends of one continuous spectrum, I think is to oversimplify and in fact misrepresent what political ideologies actually are. I think political ideologies are grounded in distinct but not necessarily competing worldviews. So in order to, to get into someone's worldview and see, okay, we believe opposite sides of this particular policy, but why do we believe this this particular policy is wrong or right, it usually comes down to values, it usually comes down to perceptions of reality, and sometimes there's more common ground than you might think just by getting to the root of things and, and discovering what someone else's values is, and oftentimes their shared values just manifested in different ways. Well, that's so interesting. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put the question to, to Matt as well, although, I mean, one thing I maybe we could pursue after we're sort of running out of time is um, I love that idea of, or I'm really interested in that idea of the left and the right, especially in America, as not necessarily representing um, uh, worldviews that are incommensurable or irreconcilable, because that is that is a question that Matt is sort of working on, right? This idea of like worldview, whether or not some worldviews simply cannot be commensurated with other worldviews. That's something we should have a beer over. But anyways, um, Matt, uh, to you, the first question, which was, what has the CLA, what has the leadership program meant to um, your development, um, uh, the developments of your of your vision for what you think would be a good life in the next 10, 15 years for you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think uh, I think Michaela probably hit on it a little bit there <clears throat> with the um, this idea of having this space that um, you can talk to other people with who have uh, different points of views, who have different um, you know principles that they think are valid and you can sit there and talk and you're in a comfortable place that you trust the other person's not going to get um, extremely offended by what you say if it's different from you know you know what you're saying Um, me and uh, Michaela and me were talking earlier um, about um, don't say campaign finance reform no it wasn't campaign (laughs) finance reform it was um it was uh, privacy in the digital age. That's what we were talking about. And we had different points of views on this. And we were talking about this, but we weren't, uh, no one was huffing and puffing and, you know, storming out of the, the, the building. We were having a conversation and we, you know, there were points that she brought up that I thought were valid points and they, you know, things I didn't know. And I'm sure there are things that I said that 
um, were valid to her and you know were things that she wasn't taking into consideration and I think this is what the the cook leadership academy is 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 kind of providing us as, as you know students as fellows is this place where we can kind of um, test our ideas in an environment that is is safe so when we go out and we test them with other people or we you know are trying to be leaders out in the world that um, we're comfortable and confident that the that we can operate in you know where we're not judging other people we're not getting you know pissed off because they have a different opinion um, we kind of get this out of our system here and now um, and we can go out in the world and you know kind of rise above that kind of situation i guess so i love i love the way you conceive of and i so agree i i love the way you conceive of the academy as being the leadership academy and perhaps the cat the academy in general as being a community in which people can have debates, dialogues, um, in a way um, that is, well, I mean, in, in a safe way, in a way in which you can really air differences and sort of bear them out and talk about them. Um, I, I hate to make you like the apologist for philosophy, but um, I, 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 I studied philosophy as well, and I'm very aware of the fact that when you say you study philosophy, you say you're doing philosophy, um, to people who are working sort of in business or in politics, you often are asked to justify that choice. Um, and so one thing I'm wondering is, you know, both you and Michaela are doing political things, w working on questions of politics, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, wh why, were, so why were you drawn to philosophy rather than political science to ask those questions? What tools do you think your philosophical training has given you to ask those questions and how have you brought your training in philosophy to bear on your experience both in the leadership academy and in the professional experiences you probably will have in the next 10 20 years yeah so i, I mean it's a big so, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, philosophy is so um to bear on uh political philosophy or the political science or um, any other field that's I mean that is what drew me to philosophy was that I can I'm pretty much I can study whatever I want from this platform and it has it pretty much it, I find it as a way it has taught me these critical thinking skills and the way to get to the heart of the questions kind of the fundamentals behind some of these different fields so when we're talking about political um, political science there are the the theories or the um, these um, uh, these different tools in political science that people use to understand politics and the world um, and my questions are kind of like why do those tools work why do those theories operate the way they do? Um, but I can go from that area, political um, um, political science, to say, um, you know, the philosophy of mind, and look at, you know, understanding what does it mean to be um, a, a person, uh, and what does the self mean? And I can use those same ideas and ways of thinking, that same logic in those areas of political science. Um, and I can move around those different areas. So I'm, I guess I'm not, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into politics. You know, 10 years down the road, I mean, in, I'm interested in politics now. But 10 years down the road, maybe, um, you know, the medical scene is what really drives me. And I get an interest in that. I can easily shift my focus onto those things. So I'm kind of, I mean, I, like I said, the Humean and the Kantian, <laughs> right. where there's the sentimental. And that's in political science right now. 
but my my rational thinking says I probably need to have other options and philosophy has allowed me to have all kinds of options heck yeah i like that. that's a that's a that's a, a savvy way to describe your work in philosophy i think that's a good i think that's probably testament to some of the ways in which you've developed in the leadership academy i would say chad helped teach me how to be savvy if i am at all savvy i don't think that i don't think i am yeah but um um matt and michaela thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me and um um, best wishes on the rest of your time in DC and, uh, and, um, finishing either finishing undergrad or going into uh, grad school. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Joe, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. That was Chad Doubting, Michaela Cole and Matthew Udbier of the Cook Leadership Academy. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground, as well as to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and of course, it's been a big year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.